I have come to learn that by and large, as humans, we do not come to like uh, a mental decision about something, which then trickles down to how we feel about it. More often than not, and almost exclusively, we end up feeling a particular way about something and then come up with the mental justification for why we feel that way. Like this is really how human uh, cognition works, is, our, is our, our, our brains are just slightly behind our hearts, if you want to use those two uh, metaphors, which is oftentimes why people, let's just say they are, if they're in this example, someone's not affirming, one of the best paths to, to help move a person towards an affirming theological posture towards queer people is for them to get to know and, and uh, to have it humanized for them, have a gay person be their friend. And, and suddenly that is, which is why TV shows and other things like it, it opens up the heart. And when the, when the heart is open up, because the mind can't go where the heart is unwilling to. So the heart has to go for it. We have to have an openness in your heart space to at least consider it before your mind would ever um, allow us. Hey you, how are you? I am Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Thank you for listening. Good show for you today. Actually, fantastic show for you today. So Colby Martin joins the show and we talk a bit about shifting from a conservative view of Christianity or a conservative belief system of Christianity to something that's not that. And you can give that a lot of different names. I think a lot of us, especially a lot of people listening to shows like this are somewhere in the middle of that. And so am I, but I have to say thank you to the newest patron, Rachel. And so I know what you want to do right now. You're about to try to skip over the next few seconds because you know what I'm about to say. I'm going to say, you know, rate and review the show and, uh, you know, do Patreon, tell your friends, etc. And I know that you wanted to skip this and, and it's been difficult because, you know, the, the buttons are really small on the screen or maybe you're using it through the Apple Watch and you just can't do it. And by the time, you know, you wanted to skip it, you would come back and realize that you should have just, I mean, rate and reviewed or told somebody about the show or join the community there at Patreon and help the show continue to grow. You financially make this possible. And so thank you to every single one of you so, so much. And so here we go. A conversation with Colby Martin where we hit on so many topics that I think are vitally important to the way that we do faith and community together. Colby Martin, welcome to the show on a late evening for me and early evening for you because we live on a continent that also happens to be a country. But I'm excited that you're here. What up, Seth? This is good. Yeah. This is good. It's good to see you. It's good to meet you. It's good to be on. I'm realizing now, and the people that can't see the video won't know this, but the book cover matches your your wall there. And I'm wondering if that was an intentional. Like, did you choose the cover intentionally? 
No, no, no. We chose the house color intentionally. So every <laughs> time I launched book. a book, we just rebrand the entire house. <laughs> that way, whatever selfies taken, whatever videos are just everything's on brand for like three years. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and now goodness. and now I, people who aren't patron supporters who don't get the video are gonna have to go get the video just for that moment so i haven't laughed like that in a few days so i don't know if you know this or not you probably don't so i work at a bank and so my life has been overtaken with the payroll protection loans oh. and it has not been filled with joy it's actually been filled wow. with a lot of i'm trying the best i can here so i really appreciate that laugh <laughs> i haven't laughed like that in a while well, Good. what do you want people to know about you when you're like, all right, I have 90 seconds. Here's what makes me me. And and I mean, outside of the platitudes of I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a human being. Like, what are oh, the geez, important... There goes my favorites. Yeah, like, what are the normal... <laughs> like, what are the important things for you that you're like, if you don't know anything else about me, here's what you need to know. So for those who are familiar with the Enneagram, uh, I am strong, identify type three in the Enneagram. Mm. Which in a nutshell means that I fundamentally at my core struggle to believe that I have worth and value just for who I am. That I have along the way through a combination of nature and nurture picked up messages that has instilled inside of me a belief that I am only worth that which I can produce and achieve in the world. And so my entire life has been an, uh, a, a constant pursuit of achieving and performing uh, and being the best at everything so that I can have worth so that I can feel like I matter and I belong. So I am, uh, I'm aware of that, became aware of that sort of phenomenon a number of years ago through therapy and other things. So I'm a work in progress uh, who's aware of now what it is that it motivates me and drives me so I can hopefully, you know, use that in the, in the, in good and helpful ways and not in sort of destructive ego drag me down ways. Um, so yeah, so that's me. I'm, I, I love to, I do, I love to perform and achieve and I love to create things and I love to be the best. Mm. And that doesn't always serve me well. It oftentimes gets me in trouble. Um, <laughs> but it's also, you know, I, I, I am who I am and, and I like me. So, and I can grow large beards. Again, if you're not a patron, I do recommend you supporting uh, <laughs> Seth's podcast. Or just can... buy the book. I mean, it's in the uh, back there. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> just to go back to the earlier thing about the being the whole house on brand, I got those headshots taken when I had a rather large beard. And over the next several months, my sweet wife kind of got tired of the massive amounts of hair on my face <laughs> and politely dropped not so subtle hints that she would love if I shaved. But I'm like, but babe, my book comes out and I've already got this giant beard. I've committed to this look for a season. So for we, just got, <laughs> we just have to like get through the interviews and the media for this season. And then I can bring the beard back down to a more reasonable <laughs> length. That's funny. Yeah. My, anyway, um, my, my four, almost five-year-old will just grab mine and mine is by no means as, as, um, prosperous Robust, as yours. Yeah. Yeah. Oregonian native lumberjacking. Uh, I would love for it to be, but the bank, I have to keep it clean. Oh, and, do you? And cropped. Yeah. Every, All it's right. like, it's really annoying every week and a half or so I have to take it back to a five, which really just breaks my heart. But yeah. anyway, that's why I became a pastor. The, so I could have the freedom <laughs> to grow a large beard. <laughs> so my pastor is also a three. I've oftentimes heard him say that many pastors are a three. Would you agree with that? I don't know if that's true or not, but something about, what did he say one time? He's like, the three in me likes being up here on this stage. And if yes. you'll let me get unhealthy, 
I'm yeah. going to twist the whole narrative so I get to stay yeah. up here on this stage and make you want it. Please don't yeah. let me do that. And I'm probably yep. badly paraphrasing that. No, I'm not sounds good. I mean, the, the shadow, dark, gross side of threes is that we are incredibly gifted at manipulation and deceit. Mm. Like that is one of our second languages. Mm. So I could, I could absolutely buy into the premise that the pulpit is a particularly uh, uh, natural cesspool for for all of the three's shadows to shine really well to mm. perform and put on the good image and sort of twist and manipulate and, and yeah it's it's gross but every, look every number has their gross side i'm just being honest about what mine is so yeah yeah no that's fine yeah and so the reason i think i read so much so i am a five which oddly enough my pastor also called me he's like the reason that i know you're a five seth is that you had to read 97 books about all of the numbers before you decided <laughs> that you were a five he's like you're a five a thorough um, explanation <laughs> of every single number yeah but that's why I can't not read veracity. So that's not why I brought you on. So you wrote a book that I think is um, what's well, called The Shift. And I like that word uh, because it implies motion. Um, although when I read the word shift, what I think about is scree, like on the side of a mountain. And I could not get that image out of my mind as I thought about religion as I read your book. Don't know if that was intentional. That's probably just me with too many books in my head. No, I don't even know what you head. mean. A scree? Uh, scree is like when you're hiking down a mountain and you come up a, about, uh, around a bunch of loose rocks. And so you'll begin down the trail and it all just gives way. And you're just, you're shifting, you're going with it, but the entire side of the face is just shifting. Uh, it's wow. like an avalanche, except for it's not an avalanche. It's, it's, okay. it's called the scree, but it, it's constantly shifting. You can't walk on it and it not shift. But explain to me what you mean when you, when you say the word shift. What I'm trying to name is the phenomenon that I have both experienced personally and then witnessed through my ministry over the last six years. The phenomenon of people either leaving or getting kicked out of, or sort of being shown the door, uh, but having some exit from what I describe as a more conservative Christian context. This could be church, this could be community, this could be family for many people, uh, but, but they're moving away from that conservative Christian context and towards something, you know, I use the word progressive, we can unpack that in a minute, but I'm just trying to name that there's a spectrum of things like belief and 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 praxis or behavior actions, there's a spectrum of conservative to progressive. And when people are are leaving their more conservative Christian community and moving towards something more open, inclusive, progressive, this is what I'm trying to name. This is what I'm trying to give language to and normalize. And really, with this book, help people survive the obstacles that are seem to be common and inherent in that journey. And so that's for me, that's the shift, the moving from the conservative to the more progressive spectrum. Of, of Christianity. Can you define both those? Because I think the word conservative gets conscripted by politics the same way that the word mask has become conscripted by politics yeah. in the world that we live in. And yeah. progressive also has its own pejorative meaning versus yeah. I think the way that you... So what do you mean when you say conservative? And in this case, we'll call it Christianity or, or faith, which is another word we'll probably have to unpack later. But And then the same thing for progressive. Yeah, they. So this is the problem with labels: is they're helpful right up until they're not. Mm -hmm. So I I love labels. They help you give a sense of of where the, the the boundaries are, the parameters are. They give you some location of of where you reside in relation to other people. So labels can be helpful, and then they're just they always will have their limitations, or they'll always be uh, begging for us to transcend them at some point. 
So I, I struggled with whether or not to, to go with, to really uh, hunker down with the progressive Christian thing. But I, I feel like at least those two words get close, <laughs> close enough in the ballpark to uh, sort of what it is that I, how I embody and embrace my spirituality. So when I'm talking about the spectrum of conservative or progressive uh, Christianity, what I'm trying to name is that if you go m more toward the conservative end, again, this is a spectrum. These are not defined boxes and markers. If you go more toward the conservative end, you are moving towards a system of belief that sort of fundamentally buys into the fact that the, the truth has already been figured out. We've locked it down. Uh, it has been uh, transcribed by the divine and codified. Like, and our job now is to just get the right beliefs and lock it down, conserve those right beliefs and lock it down. Uh, we already have the truth revealed to us. The most important thing is that you believe it and then don't move from that. Then as you move toward the other end of the spectrum, what I try to talk about with progressive is the, kind of the idea of, of a progressive is someone who believes that like progress is good, that progress is out there. Mm -hmm. and, and I know there's even limitations in that because I don't think life is about a constant chasing of the carrot. Like uh, that sounds exhausting. But the point is, is that that growth and transformation and evolution uh, an expansion of consciousness, all of these, uh, I, I think, are, are good things and should not be feared. They're feared by conservative because, again, it's over here. We just want to lock it down. And so on the conservative to progressive spectrum, we're talking about people who are moving towards something more open, more curious, uh, more comfortable with ambiguity, certainly more uh, open to the idea of paradox. Uh, so that, that's kind of the conservative progressive. Uh, for me in the book, I say that a progressive person, I kind of create four markers uh, that I say a progressive person is at least these four things. Or if you are these four things, then you at least sort of fit within what I'm labeling a progressive. And I'll just hit those really quick. One is that the person is affirming of LGBTQ people mm -hmm. that has, you know, become a rather fascinating litmus test in Western Christianity uh, over the last couple decades, where if you are basically affirming you're okay with gay people, then you are you are just instantly catapulted into the progressive end of the pool. Whereas if you are non-affirming, then you are probably you know, more labeled toward the conservative side. Uh, number two, a progressive person has a, a degree of um, comfort and uh, appreciation for the sciences. So we, we see, we understand that biology and sociology and uh, we understand that those things help reveal more truth and we're not afraid of what they might have to offer whereas more towards the conservative spectrum yeah we've got uh, contention against climate change we've mm. got uh, the idea that the earth is only six thousand years old like scientific truth becomes a threat over on the other side uh, number three like I mentioned earlier there's a sense of which progress is good and you 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 accept change and transformation as a part of life. Uh, and then number four, I think as well, another marker is that you can talk about how people accept and understand the, the, the genders as it relates to the equality of men and women. Mm -hmm. So if you move more towards the conservative end of the Christian spectrum, you're going to find yourself in, in places where men are better than women. Men are superior to women. Mm -hmm. Even if it's 51, 49%, at the end of the day, they'd be like, man's the head of the household. Uh, and so there's like a, a hierarchy there move towards the progressive end and you've got much more egalitarian postures of men and women are, are both God made them both in the image of God. So, yeah. So that was probably longer than it needed to be, but there's, 
That's how I would define progressive. No, I like I like those because it gives me room to edit if need be, but I'm not going to because I liked all of that. <laughs> um, so I do want to come back to gender because honestly, that is the page that I have marked here to, to ask a question about. But I want to ask a question a bit about litmus tests. So I find, and I think it might be partly because I do a podcast so openly that people will just ask questions. I don't know why because I'm not qualified really to answer any of them, but I point people in the right direction. Um, or at least other directions and give no answers because that's not my job. Probably not yours either. Maybe it is, but it's definitely not not mine. I'll stick in my banking arena and that's it. Yeah, I'm good at that. I find that when people will be they'll 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 shift to to use your word, but it's it's the correct word. They'll shift their belief from A to B, and they'll become just as rigid in that other belief. But oftentimes they have a similar lacking amount of knowledge to back up why they shifted. They know that they should be shifting or they feel like that's what you know, the Spirit's calling them to or whatever. But then I'll ask them why and there's no grounds to stand on. So I'm curious your thoughts on that a bit of when people are shifting. You're like, well, why do you believe that homosexuality is fine? And you're like, well, I, I, I think that it's not not fine. But why <laughs> do you believe that it is fine? Well, I listened to a podcast or... I, I, I got a friend. modern family. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is culturally, it's becoming more acceptable and it's on more yep. and more. T- but, and that's, but that's not really an answer. Like that's just a thing. Yeah. Okay. Two thoughts. The first is I, I love that. That's even like you said earlier, you're an Enneagram five. And so for you, the idea that someone would not have like an <laughs> answer for what they're like, uh, some way to back up and articulate their conviction Fair enough. for you is like, what? what's wrong with you? You're doing it wrong. Um, Fair but other people may not necessarily need to have such data to hold a uh, conviction as, as um, dearly or securely. Mm. So that's, that's just one observation is your question makes sense <laughs> knowing now what I know about you. The other thing I would say is this, I have come to learn that by and large, as humans, we do not come to like uh, a mental decision about something, which then trickles down to how we feel about it. More often than not, and almost exclusively, we end up feeling a particular way about something and then come up with the mental justification for why we feel that way. Like this is really how human uh, cognition works is our is our, our our brains are just slightly behind our hearts if you want to use those two uh, metaphors which is oftentimes why people let's just say they are if they're in this example someone's not affirming one of the best paths to to help move a person towards an affirming theological posture towards queer people is for them to get to know and and uh, to have it humanized for them, have a gay person be their friend, mm-hmm. and and suddenly that is which is why TV shows and other things like it it opens up the heart. And when the when the heart is open up, because the mind can't go where the heart is unwilling to, so the heart has to go for it. We have to have an openness in your heart space to at least consider it before your mind would ever um, allow it. So. I think what happens, I think the phenomenon that you're describing is that people's hearts have moved, which is generally, we end up just, we, we feel ways about things and then we justify them. We're not as smart as we think we are. We don't come to issues uh, and just be like, I shall now with an objective mind decide what I think about this thing. It's just, it's just not how it works. Mm. So I think a lot of people end up, they'd end up shifting and moving um, in very human and normal ways. And maybe they just haven't had the time or the space or the motivation or, or um, the interest really in sort of 
backfilling that with real solid data. Can I tell you, I like that answer, but that last part of that answer really breaks my heart. And I'm aware that that's just because of the way that I'm wired. Like I have to know how things yeah. work. Uh, for, and so here's just an example aside of everything. So I looked at the census data. I did the trends because I'm a nerd. And I realized in the matter of like when my son graduates high school in a, less than a decade, Christianity won't be the primary religion. And I know very little about any of the other ones that will be. And I was like, well, this is going to be a problem. So I, that's all that I've been reading for the last four or five weeks is just that. Because I'm like, well, this is, I don't know how to have a conversation in earnest mm. because I'm expecting them to know about me. And that's not fair. If I Anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like the lack yeah. of data just bothers me. But I, yeah. I guess I get it. I, I don't actually get it. I'm, I'm lying. I don't get it. But that's okay. So gender, you, you said in the book that you've gone, what, a decade? More than a decade of not speaking about God with a gender-based pronoun, correct? I feel like it was 10 years, 12 years. How many yeah, years? Uh, I don't know if I'm at 10. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, I guess, 2010, 2011 when I, when I sort of started making the conscious decision to move away from masculine pronouns. So so why does that matter? Like, wh- what does, why? Yeah, why does that matter? The simplest way I can describe it is to say the more that we connect with our language, and language is, you know, is one of the best tools we have for sort of uh, understanding the world around us and our experience and how we relate. So the words we use matter. They have great power to, you know, fill in the thoughts in our mind. So the words that we use about God, the way that we talk about God, the more that we connect our idea of God with a masculine, uh, whether it's pronouns, he, him, his, uh, or whether it's just some sort of, we're connecting it to maleness in any way. The more that we do that, we we do not have the option to uh, to not be impacted by the inverse of that, which is to connect maleness and masculinity with divine. Those two, th- like those two things, are 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 uh, we can't just have one without the other. So the if we are exclusively using male pronouns for God, we are sending the the whole rest of our being. We're sending messages that godliness is akin to maleness, and the inverse of that, therefore, has to be true as well. That maleness is closer to godness, at least than than female. So, I so that, so in the book, I have you know the chapter on God. I I, I do I spend time saying. Um, if the reader hasn't already considered, I would encourage the reader to consider um, stopping using male pronouns for God, or at least add in some female ones to balance it out. Mm-hmm. Because when we think that divinity is more connected to maleness, and again, nobody really says that out loud. We don't say that explicitly, but that's what's happening. That's the thing behind the thing. When we talk about God as he and him, we are linking and connecting closer to divinity to divineness with male things. And therefore that is creating a superiority over and against female and mm-hmm. femininity. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem, I think. So the thought I have two thoughts and I want to, I want to stay in this chapter for a minute. So the first thought that I had was what if I stood up and I said the Lord's prayer, but instead of our father who art in heaven, I said our mother who art in heaven. And I literally had visions of people throwing things at me as a pastor yourself. Like what would happen in a random church? If, if somebody just actually intentionally started inverting all of the pronouns, just as a proof of concept or as a proof Mm -hmm. of point, like would it cause harm? Would it, do you think it would cause trauma? Like, 
the the overall the person not necessarily reading your book like would it be helpful like how do you begin pre- preparing people to even have a conversation about god in that manner uh yeah i mean if it happens at our church it's just a normal sunday <laughs> uh but uh but i hear what you're saying uh no by the way to answer your questions would it cause harm and trauma no it wouldn't do either one of those things in my opinion um Harm and trauma, I think, are, are are words that should be reserved for some pretty, uh, you know, severe instances. Mm-hmm. And having somebody's theological conception of the divine rattled for a hot minute, to me, does not yet go into the space of harm or trauma. But it, it would unsettle people, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or it could unsettle people. So I would say that that sort of movement, that sort of shift, um, like with all shifts, should be taken with intention and care and mindfulness. Uh, and, and the goal, so if I was a pastor at a church and I myself was shifting away from thinking of God as just he and him and wanted to start in helping move the community along, uh, I would probably not just, you know, absent of any context, just open up the, the hmm. you know, the Lord's Prayer with hmm. that. Although also I do sort of like the dramatic, the flair, the, the, uh, the drop in the grenade. So, so maybe part of me would want to do that, <laughs> but no, it, it, I think Seth, that's a, those are feathers that I'm okay ruffling mm-hmm. because I think this issue is matters enough and, and is important enough mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, I think people need to have their, their feathers ruffled a bit on that. There's another part in here. You're, so you're talking about uh, just for context, uh, for you, um, you said, you know, uh, where is it at? You share the the fact that you stop referring to God as a he, as it illustrates a process of journeying toward a more progressive expression of Christianity. And then you use uh, an analogy or a metaphor, I always get those two confused, of it's like a series of falling dominoes and the sequence of the dominoes which knocks down, uh, domino knocks down which belief in what order varies from person to person. And I get that, I understand that, because for me it was very similar. If I go back through my journals, I can see like one thing to the next to the next. Yeah. But as I actually was reviewing, that that made me go back and review. There are some sections of that journal that have more gravity. That domino is a bigger domino. So yeah. just in, so for you personally, what are a few of those dominoes that you're like, yeah, when this one fell, that one caved the floor in. Like some of them just fell and it wasn't a big deal. But this one caved maybe the floor in, maybe your family's floor in because they're parallel to you, you know, as they because yeah. they live with you or whatever. Like what are some of those dominoes that had more weight? Yeah, well, so my first book was uh, in part dedicated to telling the story of the domino that changed everything, mm-hmm. which was the uh, theological inclusion of LGBTQ people. So when when I shifted on that sort of more traditional belief, that had a that had a resounding impact on me vocationally because I got fired uh, mm-hmm. from my job just for having a different theological point. Um, so it really altered the course of my life. But then it also had a significant sort of uh, uh, slippery slope. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people on the conservative end of the spectrum talk about, oh, be careful of slippery slope. And they're not wrong. This is the thing. They're not wrong. Like it is once you start asking mm-hmm. questions of things that have been fundamentally held uh, and been resistant to questions, it does open up a, a, a just sort of a, a, an onslaught of, of questioning this and questioning that and questioning that. So I, I think many people, and this is my experience, is that the LGBTQ, uh, once you have sort of shifted on that, then you do start 
asking, well, what, what else, what else has, has the church sort of held on to for a great many number of years that, uh, that I personally haven't really spent any time asking questions about. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that, that domino led to, for me, the domino of, of, moving away from a complementarian view of men being better than women and moving towards a more egalitarian view of men and women. Uh, And then the other significant domino, I would say, is one that I'm still unsure what to do with, but it's the idea of God perhaps not being a being. Hmm. (laughs) The idea that maybe God isn't this being that is you know, the, the, the biblical writers talked about up there, you know, they lived, they were in a three-tiered universe that God is up in the sky and we live on the earth. And then down below is place of the dead. Uh, and now we have telescopes. So we know that there's no God up there. We just then change the metaphor to out there. We talk about God as being out there, but, but even that, even then uh, I, I, I sort of reject the idea that if you just go out f- far enough for some point, you're going to find a being. Mm-hmm. So I think, for me, I, I've shifted away from the idea of God as a being that just interacts with earth. Why earth? I don't know. Earth randomly, who knows when, who knows why? Um, so that one's had some, some real resounding ramifications. You know, it's affected my prayer life. It's affected my, uh, the way that I sort of think about the, the trajectory of the world. So I'm still sort of, um, you know, that, that, that one's unsettled for me. Mm-hmm. In the book, I give the reader some alternative ways to conceive of God outside of just a, a separate being. Yeah. Uh, so some of those have been helpful for me. Yeah. I feel like um, isn't that, one, that's been a big domino. Isn't one in the book, I think you call it an event. God is an event. Event. Yes. Yeah. God as event. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Had you, had you come across that before? Not in that way, but I've approached that question from a different angle personally on mm-hmm. like what... Like I, I just, so Colby, just for me, like I find hell as a metaphor, um, mm-hmm. not as a literal place. Cause if it's not a literal place, it has to be something. And so it, it's got to have a literal, a literary way to be relevant. And so I find hell is like any time that I actively choose to break shalom and that shalom would be when I actively choose to help create God's kingdom. And so And when I read you saying event, it's me partnering in this event or party or creation or uh, manipulation of matter or whatever you want to call it. Like there's not the best way I've ever been able to describe God is it's a metaphor that I don't have words to explain personally. And so I don't have a good way to explain what God is just not actually possible at all. Tell the ones that broke you to go in peace. I played at Sergeant Peppers. She's leaving home and I let her. Too proud to go and get her. I sing that falsetto like I was John Lennon and think of her letters. They said, P.S. Babe, go in peace. I always been told, if you love it, then you gotta let it go. If it comes back, then it's meant to. If it don't return, then it's bad for your soul. I always been told, despite what we think, we all know. It's more good than bad out here And I think you're good for myself It's more good than bad out here And I think you're good for myself
Uh, so there, um, I literally laughed out on the couch when I read this part of your book. So in this section where you talk about weaponizing the Bible, and you're right, someone that is shifting towards progressive, um, for those that haven't read the book, and again, you should read both of them, actually. They're both very good. People would just quote scripture at you, to which I usually also, to be a jerk, will quote back that you, you search for God and scriptures, but you're missing it. I'm right here, which is a bad paraphrase of Jesus of, you keep quoting scripture to me, but Jesus said, you're still missing the point. They don't usually get that though. But there's a part in there where you're talking about weaponizing the Bible and what the Bible says. And I would like to talk about that a bit, but then you talk about like getting an email or a Facebook page with just a random Matthew section or a random Isaiah verse. And then I'm assuming you did this intentionally you just randomly dropped three random verses with no context there. That's right. Which I then stopped and looked up, which Good. makes which makes you a punk. Um, I have to assume that was intentional. <laughs> um, so, what do you mean when you say that people weaponize the Bible? Yeah, they 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 cherry pick, which we all do. And the quicker people can get on board with the idea that we all pick and choose, you know, mm-hmm. the, the better, because we do all pick and choose and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but, you know, in our, in my more conservative evangelical days, there was a, a strict denial. I don't, we don't pick and choose. We take every word. As long as Paul you know, said at face it. Face value. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so let's just acknowledge, okay, yes, we do. We, we prioritize some verses more than others. Um and we recognize that the Bible contradicts itself. And so we have to sometimes sort of make choices about what to do with that. So when people weaponize the Bible, my experience has been, they find kind of like you did with the whole, you know, uh, quoting or, or borrowing Jesus. We, we find these verses that support our feelings. This is to even go back to what we talked about a minute ago, where a person's feeling. So in this scenario, someone is maybe witnessing a friend of theirs or a family member in their mind, leave the faith. So they have the, you know, the capital C concern for their friend that is asking questions uh, or, or having these doubts or beliefs or no longer practicing the religion that they had once practiced. And what's happening for them is that inside their beings, all of their fears and insecurities are getting triggered. They're all getting activated because we have been given a system that uh, tells us that the most important thing to God, that the thing that God cares about most in the whole world is what human beings believe. The ideas that we hold between our ears, we're told is the most important thing to God. We have to believe the right things. So then when people start seeing their friends or their family members or their or their pastors start to no longer buy into the things that we'd always been told, that raises all these inner sorts of uh, doubts and insecurities of like, wait a minute, you, you don't get to question that. And the fact that you're questioning that reminds me that I have questions, but I've been suppressing those for mm. years and I don't want to face those. Mm. And so I need to sort of push you away. And so what ends up happening is in order to manage and assuage that anxiety and that fear, they end up grabbing these Bible verses and sort of launching them as grenades to try and basically get you back into the fold. Um, just, you know, this is the, 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 trying to they're trying to spank you <laughs> you know they're trying to use methods of discipline and rebuke to try to get you back into the sheep pen and it's painful it's so painful to have these words for for that for people for their for many parts of their lives they have cherished 
and they have given themselves to, and they've tried to understand, they've tried to allow these, these, these holy, sacred, inspired words to have this place of influence and leadership and priority in their life, uh, and then suddenly to have these, these words be used against them um, as ways to try to shame them back into old versions of belief or behavior mm-hmm. is just some of the most painful experiences, which ends up turning people away from the Bible for a really long time, if not for good. Um, a lot of people that make the shift sort of leave the Bible behind altogether. And it, it makes so much sense. The only way that I was able to come back to the Bible, well, there were two ways. So I bought Robert Alter's version of the Hebrew Bible, which feeds the part of my brain that needs to rip. Have you ever read, have you ever seen his no. version of the Bible? No. Uh, I'll have to show you after the recording's okay. done because it'll break the computer, uh, how to get it. It's like behind all the cables. So <laughs> it is three volumes. It's probably eight inches wide uh, or eight inches and yeah, width is the word that I'm looking for. Um, like wow. Genesis is, I think, 300 pages because he basically breaks down every verse, like every way to c- translate it with all the context and all the hyperlinks throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, um, wow. which I love. And then there's a version of the Bible, Bibliotheca, which basically stripped away all of the uh, verses and all of the chapters and all. The, it's just basically here's John, more like a scroll, um, mm-hmm. which made it more narrative for me. And I could begin re-engaging in it. So I agree. I, I also pick and choose um, intentionally. Everybody does. You're absolutely right. Everybody has a bias. Every translation has a bias. And if you don't believe me and you're listening, go to the beginning of your Bible and you'll see it in the copyright. And then you can go to that company or translator and it'll tell you what their bias is. It's like they literally all have a narrative they're trying to spin. What then do I do with the Bible? Furthermore, then after that, like because that that that's a shaky foundation for many people. If the dominoes were not falling prior, now they don't have anywhere to sit. They're just literally gravity has taken hold. So what do I do with the Bible if I if that's where we're at? And then further point, what do I do with Jesus after that? Oh yes, <laughs> I guess those are connected, aren't they? Um, I think for each person, it's going to be it's going to be different. For me, when I sort of went through my shift. I went from a person who loved, memorized, studied, uh, interpreted, like the Bible was my life for, for a number of years. And in that, again, in that system, the goal is to get the right belief and to lock it down. Mm-hmm. And so there was really, the assumption was there's only one way, there's only one correct way to read the Bible. Now, of course, throughout history, there have been thousands of ways that people have read the Bible but the illusion is that there's just one singular way. Now, who got it the most right and when? <laughs> who knows? Uh, but the illusion <laughs> is that there is one correct way to read the Bible and that it is, uh, you know, there's two I words that come to mind. It's inerrant mm-hmm. and it's infallible. Mm-hmm. Inerrant is essentially saying it has no errors in it. It is factually correct, um, which for people who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they will discover that it is not. Yeah. It just simply is not. It is full of error. Uh, it is full of historical and geographical. It is full of inter contradictions. Um, it's just not an error. And we can, there's so much freedom in just laying that down and no longer having to, the, the, the mental gymnastics you would have to go through to try and reconcile. Why did one disciple say there was two angels there, but the other one said there was one. Well, maybe it's because one guy had an eye patch on and he just couldn't see out the left side of it. <laughs> you know, we just, we go through all these weird ways to try to make, just lay it all down and be like, you know what? The Bible's not inerrant. Okay. That doesn't, that shouldn't terrify us then. Because what we were told then is it's either all true 
or none of it's true. Mm-hmm. And there was no space in between for there to uh, still be this rich depth of beauty and truth in the Bible. And then infallible was another word that, uh, that, that more conservative Christians hold on to, which is that uh, if, you, if you interpret this correctly and use it correctly, then it will not lead you astray. To which I say, I, that does not hold up to scrutiny of the 2000 years of, of Christianity mm-hmm. because we have gone astray in some pretty horrific ways. Uh, inquisitions, uh, slavery, segregation, like all of those had justification in the Bible. So the Bible is not infallible. You can interpret it and find yourself on a really dark, as you said earlier, hellish path. So those are two words that I had to sort of disconnect from how I came to the Bible and realize, okay, those are actually, not only are they incorrect, but they're holding me back. But there was another I word, Seth, that I used to love and I still do love and I just have a little bit different meaning of it. And that's inspired. So I actually still do think that the Bible is an inspired library, an inspired collection of stories and poems uh, and, and, and uh, letters. Uh, and it's, it's this hard fought wisdom, this, this insight into what it means to be human, this, this, uh, trajectory of how these this groups of people have, have tried to figure out who they are and who they are in relation to themselves and who they are in relation to one another, trying to figure out what is the meaning of life? Like who is, who or what is behind this whole thing? Like we have this amazing record of this, of these people's um, wrestling with this. This is hard fought wisdom. A lot of the truths that are in here have been, earned over centuries of people working these things out. And I am just not at a place where I feel comfortable dismissing all of that and yeah. putting all that away and saying, um, you know, because of its foibles, because of the way that it's been weaponized. And again, all of that's real. I'm not d- discounting all that, but to just set it all aside for me is to then to say, well, I don't know that if we just started from scratch in 2020, that we're going to be a whole lot better off. Hmm. Um, now, again, I just created a false dichotomy where, the Bible is the only source of wisdom or we have nothing. No, there's other sources of wisdom. But for me, the Bible is still very much the sort of divinely inspired, which for me means that it was driven by and it points to what is most true, most real, most beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I still love, I still love the Bible. I just, I recognize that it's not for everyone or that people need seasons in which they can safely detach from the Bible because it was used um, so maliciously against them. Fair enough. And then the other part of that question. So where do we fit Jesus into that with that interpretation of the Bible? I know what my answer is, but I'm curious for yours. I mean, were it not for the Bible, we would, we wouldn't know about Jesus. (laughs) I mean, there's like three other historical documents that kind of semi point to this guy named Jesus that, that lived. Um, so obviously, if you take the Bible out of it, then then you lose Jesus. Mm-hmm. For me, though, once you can again back away from the idea that the Bible is inerrant, that it's infallible, that and you can you can start to look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can start to see how each of them were written. You talked about the beginning of each Bible having a bias. Well, each Gospel writer had a bias. Each mm-hmm. Gospel writer had a they had a, a a thing they were trying to accomplish with their Gospel, which is completely legit. Like we don't need to that doesn't make them bad. That doesn't make the documents now somehow less good. 
Um, it's just they were trying to, Matthew was trying to show fellow Jewish Christians that Jesus actually was sort of the, the manifestation of this long anticipation of a becoming Messiah. Um, and John was trying to do something entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you see that all four of these authors are trying to do different things, and so that means they tell the story sometimes different. They move pieces around uh, because they're just they're doing different things with mm-hmm. it. Suddenly, you have this playfulness that you can that I have found with the Gospels. This playfulness, where I'm, it's not that I'm reading this fly on the wall account of a man named Jesus. It's not that I'm reading this 100% historically accurate document. What I'm reading is the way that this individual and his relatively short life, but his profound life and his profound teaching and the the way that he sort of um, uh, connected with other humans, it had a a massive, it made a big difference in people's lives. So much so that there's a whole sort of movement rose around his teachings and around his way of life. And, And people tried to come up with accounts to try to encapsulate that. So I come to it and I'm like, what what were they sort of so driven by and so fascinated with and how did it make a difference in their life? And is there anything, how, what's the parallel in my life? So yeah, the connection between Bible and Jesus is, is, um, is necessary because we, we, we need it to sort of understand the picture of Jesus. But my, my hope is that we can have a larger, more playful picture of Jesus and not lock ourselves into this, um, this expectation that that everything that is said in the in the gospels was actually said by Jesus. Yeah. No, it really it really wasn't. And that's okay. That's okay. Like the gospel of John, good chance that most of the things in there Jesus didn't actually say. But the person who wrote the gospel was trying to uh was trying to communicate particular things that were true for them about Jesus. And that just doesn't threaten me anymore. It used to it used to be really threatening, and now it's not. It doesn't threaten me either. Um I'm gonna tell you about a different book when we're done with all this. I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it um, if if you like big books. Um, so if we take and the last, lie. if we do what, and I cannot lie. <laughs> that's like that's an entire cannot lie. <laughs> um, no. Well then, can yeah. I say this at church? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why well, you did already? <laughs> um, so take that last 15 minutes where we talk about inerrancy. I mean, and there's a lot in there. If there's a part, I forget where it is in Exodus. I remember reading it a few weeks ago. It talks about don't do this on the Sabbath, but the Sabbath doesn't come for like two chapters later. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. that's cool. I could like I could picture myself going it, it, again in a literal interpretation. Like, you said don't do it on the wind. What is that? I won't do it. Tell me what it is so that I know what to not do. It, yeah. and, and it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So at the end of all of this COVID nineteen thing, and we're allowed to sit down with our family and our close friends, or even people in our church, and they're like, hey, Colby, what have you been learning? What have you been praying about? What is God showing you? Tell me about what's happened since I haven't seen you in four months. And you go over what you just went over the last 10, 15 minutes. Or say they read your book and they're like, I've been waiting to see you. We kind of need to talk. I struggle personally with having this type of conversation with my family because they're just not comfortable with it. And it's not healthy uh, at all. How do I do that? Like, how would you advise people? And there's a lot of those people there. If, if not, this podcast is not in a vacuum. Like it, there are many like this. Um, how does that happen? Like what would, as, as both a pastor and then as someone that I'm sure has had these conversations with people pulling you aside, like, I don't know what to do. Like I, I can't talk to mom anymore. I can't talk to dad anymore. Yeah. I'll say a couple of things. One is that you are not responsible for 
anyone's journey other than your own. Mm-hmm. You're really not. And and I know that in the more conservative evangelical world, there was earnest expectation that we would um, convince people of particular theological points, you know, so that we would save them from some sort of eternal damnation. Mm -hmm. And so really a big part of the emphasis in conservative Christianity is apologetics, which is like how to, how to convince people of the right answers. And so what ended up happening is we carry then with us all this anxiety about what our friends and family believe. And Seth, they can feel that. Like, I don't know if you, if you can relate to this experience, but I, I can remember now looking back at the times in my life when I was the most, like what I call oversaved, just incredibly eager and earnest to spend every conversation about Jesus, try to save everybody. I carried with me this like shaming sense of disappointment towards people who didn't believe what I believed. Mm-hmm. Not intentionally, uh, not explicitly, but people feel that. People, if, if, if you think that another person is going to burn forever because they don't have the right beliefs, they're, they're going to feel that energy from you. Okay. My point is just to say that mm-hmm. once we shift away from that sort of mentality, um, re- really it's important that we let go of any sort of uh, obligation we might feel to try and control or steer someone else's spiritual journey. I start there because part of me wants to say in, in your scenario, when, when someone starts asking questions, let's say, let's say you're listening to this and you've shifted on some beliefs and, and you've maybe sprinkled breadcrumbs here and there enough to where your friends and family are starting to pick up on the fact that you maybe are no longer a part of the community that, that you used to be a part of. Um, you, my, my pastoral advice to those people is, like I said in the beginning, let go of any sense that it's your obligation to move them along. To the extent that I have shifted in my theology, I've shifted in my religious world, is, I think is very little to do with me. I think a lot, when you start to look at the things that actually happened in my life, a lot of those have just felt like these moments of grace that really didn't, I can't take a whole lot of credit for mm-hmm. it, which is my way of reminding myself that, oh yeah, I, if I can entrust my own journey to God, then I need to practice entrusting other people's journey to God and trust that wherever they are at, first of all, makes a whole lot of sense because of how they were probably raised and the systems they were in and their life experience makes a whole lot of sense. And I really just need to trust God in their journey. Any sort of time people want to get into arguments with me or try and debate with me, I just have very little energy for that. Um, I will try to get out of that as quickly as possible by just saying, you know, I just think we believe differently and that's okay. Mm. I just, that's just not how I see it. And that's okay. And if people really want to keep pushing uh, and really want to debate you on it, all I would say is to the extent that you can have a non-anxious presence that lets them know that you know that it's okay. Like, oh yeah. I can see why you would think why you think that that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, I think one of the roles that best things we can do is just be you like midwives for each other, where we're just standing alongside one another, holding each other's hands, being safe, non-judgmental, loving presences, so that the people in your life they they know you're not judging them. They know you don't think less of them. You know, you're not looking at them with any sort of condescending, like, well, I've shifted and evolved. Why won't you No, you're just this loving, non-anxious presence, which signals to them that if, and when they are ready to finally start asking some questions, they've been really afraid to ask for a long time. Hmm. 
may you present yourself in such a way that they know you are a safe person to start to explore that way. That's really, I think, the best thing I can I can encourage people to try and be. I'll also say that's extremely hard for someone with my personality to yeah, to to not to not spew out like, but that's not what it says in the Greek or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so two questions. One should be fairly quick, and then the other, who knows? So to play on the very beginning of the book, in the non-existent biblical manhood that should exist, you you equate to it at the beginning of your book that um, there's some magic mixture of King David and Braveheart, and I just really want to know because I'm trying to raise a godly man above me while he sleeps. <laughs> what is the what is the correct ratio here? Just you know, if I'm trying to make that mixture, uh, <laughs> I would recommend. <laughs> Probably 60% David, 40% Braveheart. <laughs> this sounds good to I, me. I, I think I think David has enough depth of dimension to his character, the, the tenderness for Jonathan, the uh, the loyalty to Saul, the, the capacity to access deep emotional well-being and security with the Psalms that he wrote. He just, he showed a lot of tenderness. Uh, yeah. And so I think that is more important. 60-40. Yeah, raising, raising boys in this culture right now, <laughs> Put more of your emphasis, I think, in in the tenderness and the depth of emotional well-being, um, because the the other part, like they're just sort of it, for mo. Uh, I'm going to get myself in hot water here. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hate this question. What did you, you do to me? I Seth? said you had to be. You could have been quick. You could have left it at sixty. Let's leave it at sixty forty. I don't want you to be. Yeah, in hot yeah water. great. I can't leave anything quick. My life motto is: Why use ten words when fifty will do? Well, when you said David, I thought to myself, but that's just forty percent of that massive stare that says, "Bring your horses." I brought my spears because um, that's all I see. A Braveheart is just Mel Gibson pacing in blue paint. Oh. Uh, still one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So final question. It's a, it's, it's a great movie. Um, question I've been asking everyone. So when someone asks you, if I ask you, if anybody asks you, Hey, when you say God and you're trying to give words to something that really is very hard, like what are you actually trying to say? Like if you were to try to wrap words around God's not even the accurate word, what is that for you? For me, it is the acknowledgement that there is more going on than what we can see and touch and smell and feel. To me, to talk about God is to name that there is something behind. There's something within. There's something underneath it all. That we are more than just atoms and molecules and pizza and paychecks. That there actually is something else behind it and through it all. But to then go one click further, it's also to acknowledge that it, as far as I choose to believe it, and in many ways it is a choice, as I choose to believe it, that something else I believe is benevolent. I don't think it's indifferent. I don't think it's just a, a Star Wars force. I don't think it's malevolent. Malevolent. I think the thing that is behind the thing, the thing that is under it all, as, as Paul says, the, the thing in which we live and move and have our being, I believe is benevolent. Marcus Borg says that the whole with a capital W, the whole is good. And that's, that's what I mean when I, when I, one of the things I mean when I talk about God is that there is more going on and it is good. And it, it, the closest we can get to what that looks like, I think is love. Hmm. I love that St. John gave us the simple phrase that God is love because I can sometimes get a, gr a grasp on what love is and what I my favorite piece of advice to people is simply always trust love because love never fails. Love never fails. 
and therefore, I think you can uh, you can trust that if you are seeking after love, embodying love, practicing love in all of its dimensions, you are getting closer and closer and closer to God with every breath. Plug the places, Colby. Where do people go? Because I, I have 80 more questions I could ask you, but I won't. So we, sh- we should end this. Where, where would you want people to go to buy the book, find your things? Do, do the uh, things? Probably the best place is I have a website, colbymartinonline.com kind of functions as my hub for books that I've written, articles that I've written, sermons that I give, videos. Um, I just had a TED Talk come out last week mm. that I'm really proud of. It's all about uh, sin. Mm-hmm. I stood on a TED stage and gave a talk about sin. I enjoyed uh, it. So anyway, colbymartinonline.com. Uh, and then I'd love to have people follow me, Instagram, Twitter, at Colby Martin. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks to your family as well as your dog for sharing you. I know I know it's a commitment on, on both ends. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Seth. Call me by your name. And I'll call you by mine. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Colby. It was playful. We laughed a lot, but the meat of this I think is is needed. And it was helpful as I re-listened back to it. I, I found myself nodding my head quite a bit. And um, yeah, if you got anything out of it, let me know. Let me know on Twitter, Facebook, email, however you want to let me know. Uh, you could send it to me on Instagram, but to be honest, I get confused on Instagram and I, I may not ever see it. You also have probably noticed that there's a little bit different music in this episode. That is from Heath McNeese. He's one of the first artists that ever let me use music on any episode of any show that I did, including a podcast that I used to be a part of and edit before this one. And he's just so generous. His music is beautiful and it's moving. And you should listen to it. Go and subscribe to his stuff or go down into the show notes and click on the link for the Spotify playlist for this show. And you'll see his music listed in there as well as all the music from the past shows all weaved into a master playlist. I hope you're having a fantastic week. And I pray blessings on you. And we'll talk soon. Call you by my name. And you call me by yours. We could play it safe. If you're still unsure Why apologize to him? I don't even know him I ain't bothered if I disappoint him Even if I could, I won't control it It's a closed door to no one opens Let them blame it on a chemical imbalance They just jealous cause they feelings growing stagnant We ain't the ones descending into madness We the ones that rose above the average Why don't you come a little closer, love?